Well, hey, again, thank you for being here. If I've not met you, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor. I'm very gra- grateful, glad, grateful. I don't know, those go together. Glad and grateful is what I was trying to put together. Uh, but I'm thankful that you're here. Uh, rainy days, in my opinion, are the worst. I totally disagree with Peter. I would love it to be 85 and sunny every single day. So when we launch Center Church Phoenix campus, you can all join me, okay? We can all go together and migrate. But for now, God has us here, and we will serve faithfully here. Uh, it's funny because I was thinking, uh, I don't know how your relationship or your family works. Lindsay and I were reflecting last night on things I'm bad at. Literally, we're at dinner. We're talking about this. Uh, I don't know if it, that doesn't make me a humble person. That just makes me maybe more self-aware than, than I used to be. Because what's funny is really I think about like there's, I mean, there's a lot of things. You probably, if you've been around center any length of time, you maybe have a list already of things I'm bad at. But I've, I can narrow it down to three specific areas that I am bad at things. Here we go. So, and you don't have to take notes on this, please. But just for future reference, like keeping notes on your paper. Here's the first one. The first thing I'm really bad at is drawing hearts. Anyone else have a struggle with this? No? Okay. You're, at, like, you're all good at drawing hearts. It's incredible. Like I, I can draw decent, but when I try to draw a heart, literally the shape of a heart, like the, the cute romantic thing you put at like the end of a letter, right? The, that kind of heart, not even like aortic valve heart. I'm talking like the basics of a heart. It turns out to look like something that a, a, a three-year-old drew. Like it's, maybe a three-year-old could do it better. Actually, I bet some of your three-year-olds could draw a better heart than me. It's like, I remember the first like love note I wrote to Lindsay. She was like, is that supposed to be a heart? <laughs> like, that looks like a square. I'm not sure how you did that. Like any artistic bone in my body just breaks down when I have to draw a heart. That's something I'm bad at. The second thing, and some of you will feel me on this, is the game of golf. I do not understand. Literally because of COVID, I think golf just got more popular suddenly. Golf is the worst sport ever. For multiple reasons. But number one, the, the reason for me, this is the reason, because I'm so bad at it. That's why in my mind is the worst sport ever, because I only like things I'm good at. So when I play golf, what ends up happening to me, you could, you could say, oh, it's the nature. I love walking in nature with a bunch of my buddies. Like, you could say that, okay, I, I'll give you that. Or you like to drive around a golf cart, it makes you feel powerful somehow uh, on someone else's nice lawn. Like, you could tell me that. Here's what happens. I go golfing, and the last time I went golfing is probably six years ago. What ends up happening is I throw more clubs than I do hit balls. Like, I, I'm just so angry. I get so, like, my inner com- like competitive nature just rises up, and it's a game against yourself and those you're with, obviously. I hate it. Here's the third thing I'm bad at. Furniture assembly. Does anyone else feel me on this? Like, ever ordered something from Ikea or Wayfair, and you're like, are you serious? Does this take, like, a staff of 30 people? To put together this dresser, it's like radically unfair. And Lindsay, we, we updated some of our living room furniture last summer, because what else do you do when you're sitting around home all day? So we did that. We ordered some furniture, and we get it. And I, I, every time a box would show up on our door, here's what I would say. How, did that, how does that fit into that small of a box? Which means that assembly for me is going to be a living hell. Because there's literally 30,000 dowels I've got to find and make sure I don't lose and glue and all these pieces. And I have more Allen keys than you could desire because I have so many furniture boxes like that just rolled into our house. And every time Lindsay's like, okay, I need to go do something or I'm going to run a quick errand. Can you just keep the project going? Can you keep it going? Can you just make sure we get to complete? Here, I found a perfect picture. This is how I want to leave like, I, wanna, I want her to show back up, and this is the kind of picture I want her to see. Like, that's how I feel. I just, I'm like, I'd rather just 
spell oops and just move on and pretend and, and, and all of us acknowledge that I'm bad at furniture assembly. And so they're literally projects in her house. She's become way more handy than me in this like whole home renovation project thing we're doing. And I'm just like, I know for the good of our marriage, we've been married eight years almost. Like I know at this point, it's better for me just to say, how can I support you? How can I help you? What can I hand you? Like I just have backed off furniture assembly. Now it's funny because I bet in your life it's the same. Like there's actually things in my life, those are kind of humorous and those are take it or leave it. There's things in my life I'm bad at, I ought to be better at. Like for instance, swallowing pills. Literally, I still am a three-year-old when it comes to swallowing pills. I'm like, no, don't make me do it. And I always ask, do you have any liquid version of this? Like, please just give me the liquid version. I'm literally like a, a child. I need the grape flavored Tylenol. Like, please give me that. I know I should be better at that. Like, I know you're all judging me, but I know that I should be better at swallowing pills. It's something I should have mastered by this point, 30 years into my, my young life. But the other thing is I, I probably should be better, especially with kids at exercising and eating intentionally. Like there's probably some of you who feel me on that. It's like, man, I had a good rhythm, I had a good routine, and then you drop a newborn in there and everything gets jacked up. And then you're like, man, how do I, how do I need to eat better, not so many Reese's cups at night, and I need to figure out how do I work out more intentionally? All my routines and rhythms change. That's something I ought to be better at. And there's, and I don't say this from like a, a sense of guilt or shame, but there's things spiritually you and I probably know we should be better at. Like I, I know I should be better at a daily rhythm of reading scripture. I just know I should be better at that. I don't do that every day. I try to, but I don't read it every day. I know I should be better at that. But, but let me press on attention. I bet you felt, if you follow Jesus for like five days, you felt this, is that I know because of my personality and my wiring, something that's an obstacle for me to, to being better spiritually is the ability and the practice of sharing my faith with people who are far from God. That's a tension. That's something I feel. I bet if you follow Jesus for any length of time, you felt that same tension. Like God's doing this stuff in your life where you come to center, you're pumped up, you're excited. Boom, Monday morning, 9 a.m. You're like lips sealed, private, keep it insulated, don't tell anyone. But that's obviously not. I mean, if you read the scriptures for, for a few minutes, you can find out God's heart is for all people, is to let people who are far from God know that he's inviting them into relationship and so I was scanning, we were scanning even as a team, just what stories, what, what pathway can we take to, to grow in this? And one of the most kind of weird stories I could find in the book of Acts is actually the perfect story. It's in Acts 10. Some of you maybe remember this story. It's the story of Cornelius and Peter. And we're going to cover a lot of ground in scripture. And so it will not be on the screen. You may need to pull something out to track with where we're going. Could be on a phone, could be in your Bible. Acts 10, and we're going to start right away in verse 1. And here's how this story begins. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout. They were God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about 3 in the afternoon, he had a vision, kind of a mental picture from God. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear, which is what I would do if I had an angel call my name. <laughs> stared at him in fear and said, what is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone... 
Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who's one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. We're going to pause there. There's two main characters in the story. We got Cornelius on one side and we have Peter on the other side. Now, what's funny and what makes this story so ironic is you literally cannot pick two more diverse, different characters than Cornelius and Peter. So you got Peter on one side, who, if you, again, have been around scripture, you know, Peter was one of the 12 disciples and, and scholars would say he was even part of this kind of inner circle of the disciples. He was part of like the top three that Jesus had. Guys, he was investing in specifically and intentionally trying to develop and disciple. Peter was in that mix. Peter was also the same guy who grew up in a Jewish family, went to synagogue, did all of the right things. And who at the end of the day, before Jesus leaves this planet, actually commissions Peter and says, you're going to be the one to, to carry my church, carry my mission into this world, into this, this Gentile area. And then you have Cornelius. Remember Acts 9, literally a chapter before this? I mean, some of you have heard the story of Saul on the Damascus Road. Like Saul was was part of that Roman movement to stamp out Christianity at, at the expense of people's lives. I mean, he was going after people. He was chasing them down. And so Romans were not necessarily fans of, of this Jesus of Nazareth. But it says that Cornelius, though he had that background, which is radically different than Peter, ha had some kind of knowledge of God and was trying to worship God through his life. And it says through his generosity and so here's what makes this story get really interesting. Verse 9, here's what we read. About noon, the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became angry or hungry, which are synonymous in our family. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So this is kind of weird. He's praying, he's hungry, he's in this weird mental state. Verse 11, he sees heaven open and something like a sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And a voice told him, which is, I don't know if this is God's approval of hunting or not, but it says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Like this is the message. It's in this divine moment of prayer on this rooftop, God gives this vision of literally animals descending from the sky, all animals, by the way, that were likely not kosher for a Jewish person, not, not legal for him as a religious Jew to eat things that were culturally and, and religiously off limits. And they descend from the sky and God says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And he responds. You can see his, his cultural bias here. He's like, what? Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. But the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Quick pause. Do you think in this story with Peter and Cornelius, God is just talking about what food they eat on Sunday morning anymore? This is a moment. This is a, a massive shift in the church in Christianity as a movement, this is, this is indicating to Peter, not only can you eat, eat this food on Sunday morning now, but I am going to include, I'm going to use you to include every single person who formerly was outside, who was lost, who was Gentile, pagan, you name it, whatever word you want to call them. They were outside the family of God. I'm going to use you, Peter, to make sure they get found again. 
And what God communicates in this when he says to kill and eat, really at the end of the day is a truth that you and I already internally know. And maybe if you follow Jesus, you've experienced this grace. It is the biblical truth that every person is worth being found. Every person. Every person is worth being found. Doesn't matter how they look, how they vote, how they spend money, where they live, what car they drive, what, what religion they grew up with, what culture they grew up in. Every single person is worth being found. So if you fast forward through the story in Acts 10, you see Peter and Cornelius meet. They have this encounter. It's kind of like, oh, God is speaking to you too. It's like this crazy moment where their worlds collide. And Peter gives this incredible sermon. If you've never read Acts 10, take 10 minutes and read it later this afternoon or something. Like it's a powerful story. But I want to, I want to kind of jump to the end of that sermon in verse 34. If you have your Bibles, you see this. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how, how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. If you were sitting there as a Jewish person, you grew up in Israel, you went to synagogue, your mind is literally blown right now. You're like, what did Peter just say? What, what was his vision about? Like God is blowing open the doors of who the, the, the people of God thought, was, thought were worthy of being found. Verse 36, he keeps going. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Now you get to that incredible story. Peter Cornelius like opens the worldview. Uh, ironically, probably none of you grew up in a Jewish household. So we all kind of fit in Cornelius's category of, of outsider, of Gentile, of pagan, someone who is on the, on the fringe of the religious accepted. But why don't we accept the same mentality Peter had when it comes to sharing our faith with those around us. What, what's the difference between what Peter experienced as a good Jew who God broke open the cultural uh, framework? And like, we have the same gospel. If you grew up in church, you, you know the gospel. You know what the good news is. You know the, the hope and the salvation that comes in Jesus Christ. And, and you know probably the calling that we all have. It's shared. We all have a calling from God to make disciples, literally to raise up apprentices, students of Jesus just like we're trying to be. We're not only disciples, but we're called to make other disciples, to, to spread and to teach and to baptize and to command and to exercise God's authority on this earth. But why don't we do it? Like if you know all of it, but you're not always living and you're not seeing this, this move of God happen in your life, why is that a thing? I sat with this question for a long time because this is a question I think about almost daily because I interact with people just like you do who are far from God, who aren't connected to a church, whose life is, is in all sorts of backwards, messed up way. And so I've been there. Like that's been my life. And in some ways that still is my life. And, but I know the calling. So I've got this tension. I know this calling from God. I know my own kind of problems and roadblocks to it. And I was like, what are the three? If I could just hone in on three specific roadblocks that, fa that we face in our community to sharing our faith. Here's what we, here's what I came up with. The first one is fear of intolerance. Now, let me just press on a unique cultural thing we're all living through right now. The irony of what's happening in our world, and even this is political, this is social. If you go on social media, you'll find this in like a couple seconds. 
the only thing worse than being viewed as intolerant, actually the only thing that our, our world will not tolerate is being intolerant. Have you noticed that, how ironic that is? Like for me to say that Jesus is the only way, truth, and life, we won't tolerate that. Like that, which is just kind of a mix up of its own terms. Like, but I think all of us deep down maybe feel that. We maybe feel like I don't want to be viewed in our society or in my workplace or in my neighborhood as being kind of a bigoted, judgmental Christian person. If I, if I say that this is my view on sexuality or how this is informing how I'm voting or how I spend my money differently than I would if I wasn't a follower of Jesus, I think that fear for some of us has crippled us for maybe years. This view of being, uh, of the fear really, of being viewed as intolerant or judgmental. The second one is a fear of rejection. Man, I've had so many conversations with, with those of you in our church, and, and I've been here too, where it's like, well, if I share my faith, or I invite that person to the 15-year anniversary, or I invite them to Easter or Christmas, whatever, they're going to think that, that our relationship is based on if they come or not, or they're going to they're gonna reject me because they don't have interest in faith, or they don't believe the same things I do, or they didn't grow up in a church, they don't understand kind of the cultural framework I'm coming from, and maybe that relationship will be over. Maybe they'll just reject me, and I'll fail, and it's like this abysmal kind of chaos that will ensue relationally because I asked if they wanted to come to church, or I shared what God is doing in my life. I think that's a real fear. The third one, I think, is the most pervasive not only in our culture, but this is true in my life too. It's not just the fear of being viewed as intolerant or being rejected that crippled me sometimes. If I was just brutally like honest and candid with you, the thing that stops me from sharing my faith the most, and I think this is true of a lot of us, is just spiritual apathy. And apathy is really like recognizing God has done this in your life, but not taking what he's done in your life seriously enough to have an urgency or a desire or a passion for other people to know about it. That, that to me is, is the thing. That to me is the, the toughest one to overcome. And it's like you read the book of Acts, you read even Acts 10, the story, Peter and Cornelius are like, man, that's an incredible story, but we don't actually take seriously the implications for our Monday through Saturday life when it comes to these stories. It's like, man, that's great for them. Or I remember when I got saved, or I remember when I started a relationship with Jesus, but it hasn't sunk down quite deep enough to allow us to have an urgency and a passion. We've, we've decided in our minds who is worthy of being found or not, even though the scriptures would declare over and over emphatically, every person's worth being found. I remember seeing this last year. I mean, COVID was a great chance to observe the, the world of Facebook, and, and I still like to observe it. I get discouraged more than I get encouraged a lot of times, but, but I was on it more than normal, just like you were probably on it more than normal. And as I looked through Facebook, there was a, a uh, I don't know if it was a church or, or some post that was kind of from a spiritual organization, and it was a bunch of Christians commenting, and it was kind of critical of the specific female leader uh, in government. And there was a comment below that stopped me in my tracks, not only because it was like, whoa, but also because I could see some of those same feelings and tensions in me. And I want to show it to you. So here's what this lady posts under this article. She says, I know God tells us not to hate anyone and to pray for them, but also tells us not to lie. So do I continue to hate this woman? I pray for her, but I can't say what my prayer for her is. So I'm not telling a, a lie. Does, is that good or bad? I love the Lord 
but some people are beyond caring about. How can you read Acts 10 and, and say something like that? Well, to me, that, that is a symptom, that kind of comment about someone who's not a Christian, for me, is really a symptom of spiritual apathy. It's like, I have received the grace of God. I have received the love of God. I even kind of intellectually assent to the fact that I should share my faith or share my Jesus story with somebody else. But it hasn't quite got down enough to where it starts to change how we view every single person we interact with, whether we like them or not. Enemies or not. Gentiles or not. Corneliuses or Peters or not. And to me, that is one of the great obstacles uh, I'm not talking about the church at large. I'm talking about center church, us, that we will have to seeing God's mission lived out among us. And I was even looking back like last year, and I don't do this a lot, but for some reason I was like, what did I preach on last Sunday this past year, this, this very Sunday last year? And one of the notes jumped off my, my outline to me, and I, noticed, I felt like it was worth reiterating. Because in that moment, September 25th or 26th, whatever, we were in the first couple weeks of the Gideon campaign, this, this kind of initiative we had to, to move into this space and to renovate and do all these things that we're enjoying now. But one of the things that I felt like God pressed on my heart was to say that if we get a permanent facility, but don't develop a greater heart and desire for lost people to know Jesus, we've lost. We've lost. God will give our resources away to someone who does care, to a church who does care, to a group of people who do care. Now, I know that's heavy. I know that's like, wow, that's kind of intense. But, but I, I have friends and churches in my history who God has done that, where they lost their heart for people to come to know Jesus, and they became this insulated club of people, which, to be honest, if you sit around long enough, none of us really want to be a part of that, but we can drift into that through apathy and through fear and through isolation and trying to be comfortable instead of pursuing the mission God has for us, pursuing what Acts 10 is trying to communicate to us, even in, in 2021. And God will, get, God will find other people. His mission and, and people around us are way too important to our Father to let them just drift away and never hear that they're loved and worth being found. Charles Spurgeon, a revival preacher, says this. He writes, have I, I have concluded this. You will not know how to get to heaven simply by eavesdropping on the conversations of church members. Ouch. <laughs> like, he's talking about me there. We talk too little about the Lord. Is this not the truth? Many of us need to pray, oh Lord, revive your work in my soul, that my conversation may be more Christ-like, seasoned with salt, and kept by the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about it. We, we acknowledge that there's three really primary roadblocks we all face. I want to teach for a second, just talk as we're, as we're nearing the end here, about three ways. Like if there's three roadblocks, what are the ways? How do we move beyond this? Maybe you're sitting there and you're like, I know that God is calling me to more. I know maybe you're sitting here and you have a normal job, but God's calling you into vocational ministry. How do you move, how do you move that along even now before you have that all finalized? I want to give you three ways, and these are very simple. Some of you do them really well. Some of you are like me, and sometimes you do them really well. The three ways are very simple. The first is to pray. Pray. Start with prayer. And we're going to take a chance. You've got cards and pens on your seat. We're going to take a chance to pray for people in our lives who are lost at the end of the service. But 
pray. It's very simple because when we're sharing our faith and we're pursuing zero lost among us, which is what we're talking about, zero lost people, not being content to have who we have, but knowing that there's people in these empty seats near you who need the hope and grace and, and the mercy of Jesus Christ at work in their life, in their marriage, in their parenting, in their workplace. And so for me, it has to begin with prayer because I am not doing this mission in my own power, in my own strength, in my own desire even. There's some times where God will put like a prompting or a nudge in your heart for somebody or maybe inviting them to church. And there's like 3,700 reasons that come up in my mind why that's a terrible idea. And it's all those things we talked about. It's fear of being intolerant or fear of, of being looked at as judgmental or failing in a relationship or, or that apathy that creeps back in, which is why we start with prayer. Too little of us pray about the people in our lives who are far from God, but we expect a change. There's no change without prayer. There's no transformation in people's lives, you or mine, without a rich and deep prayer life. The second is very, very simple. This is way more tactical, but is ask questions. Ask questions. Like you may be in a position where you hear someone. I remember uh, Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in Atlanta, talks about he listens for the three knots, N-O-T-S, and the three statements people will make in conversation, you maybe even heard some of this this week, just like I did, three knots that come up. The first one is when someone says something is not going well. That's an opportunity to ask questions and to, and to bring a kind of a spiritual component to the conversation. You just do that by being curious. The second is I'm not prepared for. So something that's happening in their lives they're not ready for. And man, this was me in May. I'm not prepared for being a dad. I have no idea what I don't know. Like, I'm terrified. I'm not prepared for. When someone says that in your life, that's an opportunity. Keep asking questions. Keep that trail going. And the third knot is, I am not from here. And some of you have recently moved to the area, so you feel this. You're like, yeah, I'm not from here. I don't know. Where is, where's the best place to get coffee? Or where should I be buying groceries? Or where should my kids go to school? When you hear that, I am not from here. It's an opportunity to ask questions, to get curious, to open the conversation, to broaden it to something that eventually leads to that third thing is always in every conversation you and I have, which, which Paul and, and the, apostle, the apostle Paul will later talk about your conversation being seasoned with salt. And that Spurgeon quote mentioned that, which is not just like a comment on how we should cook, but, but it's really a comment on how our conversation should appear, should preserve and bring out the best in other people. The, the, the third thing we can do, the third way is to steer it to the spiritual. It's to say, I know that you want to have a conversation about like what's happening at home, what's happening in your marriage, or even what's happening politically or in our world or how this thing is going or that thing is going or how our, our nation's handling this or that. Those are always opportunities. They're little cracks in people's lives that you can try, excuse me, you can try to steer to the spiritual and to bring the conversation, well, here's what God has done in my life in this area. Here's what God has done in my marriage in this area. I remember uh, I was running with a friend, this is a few, a few years ago, down at the Kent Trail, and we were running together, and he begins sharing. He doesn't, doesn't go to church, doesn't know Jesus. He was just like, man, I was like, so how, like, how long have you been married? He's like, actually, my marriage is ending this week. Like, this is the week we're finalizing divorce. And he was broken, clearly. He's, we're running along, running along, and he shares that. And I'm like, all right, God, here's the moment. I, I, I've been praying for this guy. I've been asking, I asked the question, and now I have to have the boldness and courage 
to steer to the spiritual. So I didn't do it perfectly, but what I said was, I actually know a couple in our church whose marriage was falling apart. They got connected to, to a small group and, and God healed their marriage. They're sitting here today still married. And that was it. Now, it led to some great spiritual conversations. Uh, a couple weeks later, I was able to share my Jesus story, how God's impacted my life. And, and to be honest, the results are not up to me whether or not he falls on the altar and, and becomes a Christian or surrenders his life to Jesus. But I am responsible to obey when God asks me to obey, to do what God is asking me to do and to steer it to the spiritual. Some of you know I'm in grad school and I stumbled across a story uh, from a guy, uh, kind of a spiritual writer named Thomas Keating. Uh, Thomas Keating writes about this, this mother he knew who, as her son was just graduating college, was tragically murdered uh, by a sociopath, actually. It wasn't a drunk driving incident or something that's kind of a typical thing we hear. It was uh, literally a, a killer, a serial killer who uh, killed her son. And she gets this news, and obviously, if you're a mom in the room, you feel, I mean, you can't even imagine the depth of emotion that that kind of thing would bring. A couple weeks go by, funeral passes, and she feels, and she's a Christian, she feels this urge to go visit this inmate at the prison, which, if I'm honest, I don't know if I'd have that urge. I don't know if I'd follow through on that, but she, she drives a couple hours to this prison that he's at. And she, she wants to just say, hey, God loves you, and I, I can't forgive you right now, but, but I just want to say God loves you. And so she mutters that, but then kind of flips into a question all of us would be begging at the funeral or in that, in that prison cell. I mean, she, she asks, can I just, this is weird, but can I ask why did you kill my son? And the sociopath responds, actually, it brought me great joy. It was just a pure thrill of it to stand over him and have power over him. He's like, because my, my parents abandoned me when I was young. I don't know my dad. My mother was abusive. And, and so it just was being able to have power, be able to kill somebody and not have them be able to do anything about it. And she obviously breaks down in tears. She's incredibly emotional. So she leaves the cell. She gets up. She's like, I can't do this. Drives home. A couple days later, one of the correctional officers uh, he, here's this story and, and, and calls her and says, you know what, it's really interesting. Uh, you visited this inmate a few days ago, but he, he's like had a change of heart. There's something different about him. Like his life is starting to change. He's happier. He's conversational. Like we're talking about a sociopath killer, not someone who's super relational. He, he's interacting with other inmates differently. He's being more kind and polite to our correctional officers. I just wanted to let you know. So she hangs up the phone, says, thank you. And another couple weeks goes by and she feels that same prompting. Go to the prison, go to the prison, go, go meet this inmate again. She's like, God, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. But she gets in the car, she starts the car, drives a couple hours, goes to the prison, walks in the cell. And she's like, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know what I'm doing here. And uh, she says, I... I'm just, I'm going to hug you and then I'm going to leave. So she gets up, stares at her son's killer in the eyes and embraces him. Because she believed every person is worth being found. She embraces him. 
And it's a cold hug, not like he's super tuned in emotionally. The hug ends and she steps back, takes a step back, and she sees this tiny, minuscule tear out of his left eye. And then she leaves. She reflects on that story. She was journaling about that story. As a follower of Jesus, she was spending time with God around this and bringing it to him. And she says, what I realized in that moment is that in, in some weird supernatural way, I, who had lost a son, have gained a son through this inmate. And he, who never had a mother who loved him and was for him, gained a mother in the moment. And they stayed in touch after that. Can I just say, I mean, we have a heavenly father who has lost, who lost a son but is consumed with making sure every single person is found because every single person is worth being found. That there's no person you meet. There's no killer. There's no employee. There's no boss. There's no politician who is not worthy of being found. And you can search scripture over and over again. Jesus just affirms us that every single person, every single person, Peter's, Cornelius is you, me, that, that woman, Thomas Keating, whoever is worth being found. And so what we're going to do specifically uh, in this one, we're going to create a little space. Again, you've got a card. You've got a name probably. You maybe have a family member or a coworker or uh, someone who's close to you and God has given you influence in their life. I'm going to encourage you just to write down their name. And while we're singing this next song, and I know it's kind of clunky and maybe weird, you may bump into somebody, that's okay. I want to just use the front of this stage as kind of an altar to say, God, we, we know that we cannot reach these people. We don't have the capacity to love and to care for them the way you can, but we know that if you got in touch with them, if, you, if they encountered the real Jesus, not what they heard about, not what, what their parents told them, but the real Jesus, life would change. Love would be possible in their lives. And, and so I've got people, I've got a name. Actually, I wrote it down earlier. Someone who I interact with every single month, who I just know doesn't have a relationship with Jesus. Life is not going super well for them. And I'm going to put her name down here and just say, God, would you move in her life? Would you give me opportunities to not only pray for her, but, but ask questions and steer it to the spiritual? Because I believe every single person is worth being found. And so I'm going to give you like 30 seconds just to process that. Maybe you already have a name. Maybe you need to think on that. Maybe you have no names and your prayer needs to be, God, give me some names. I need to have some names. And then I'm going to encourage you during this next song as the band leads us just to bring it up and place it at the altar as we pray. Uh, for those names later on. So let's let's engage.